Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. On today's episode, I'm joined, as always, by Greg. Hey, hey. And we're going to be talking about Takenoko. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing. Yeah, uh, so you actually had a pretty big haul recently. Um, You picked up uh, a bunch of games that you were pretty excited about. We've, until today, only played Terraforming Mars because I am obsessive and that's what happens. But um, today we just sort of sat down and finished a game of Vast the Crystal Caverns. Cavern, singular? I think it's Cavern, yes, one. I mean, it is one. You played it. But Vast is a really fascinating game in which it's sort of a dungeon exploration game. You know, the knight starts at the entrance and sort of explores, and there's objectives that you have to accomplish before the cave is fully revealed and collapses. But one of the things that makes it completely unique is the fact that there's five different sort of factions. Um, There's the knight, there's the goblins, there's the thief, the dragon, and the cave. Unlike maybe a, a more typical game, each of these factions isn't identical or even similar. Each of them has a completely asymmetrical set of abilities, play styles, and most importantly, objectives. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this is what makes this game really cool is, I mean, first of all, who can you play as in this game? You can play as the knight, you can play as the thief, you can play as the goblins. So far, so, you know, decently normal. You can also play as the dragon. And then the most interesting one is that you can play as the cave. That in itself, just saying that, it's like, oh yeah, I'm playing the cave in this game, is just strange. Right. And it's not quite like a GM situation where, you know, the cave just wants to be in opposition to everyone. It does, but it has a purpose. The cave has a victory condition. Yeah, exactly. The cave wants to collapse in on the people that are inside of it and so it's really interesting and i love that idea like as soon as i heard that i could play as the cave i was like i'm doing that (laughs) that is like even when we were setting up today greg was asking uh our friend pedro like what would you like to play i'm like i called dibs on cave yeah he did it was right away i mean it was like how he always claims the yellow yep exactly so it was really interesting i liked that idea and the balance of this game is fascinating because we played a three-person game and I became an accidental kingmaker mm-hmm. because I made a mistake. But it's just like, it really does make you have to try to balance who you're working with and who you're working against. If, if a single victory condition is met, then the game is over. We have that accidental kingmaker situation in our game where I made a mistake and therefore the goblin player won. So you have to like make sure not to let anyone get their victory conditions before you can get yours. Right. I do think from that sort of consideration, from that perspective, the cave is the hardest to play. I compared it to the renegade in Bang, in which you know you have a victory condition, but your victory condition is that no one else achieves theirs before the game is over. So you had sort of the hardest job of having to balance one side against the other. You know, for the knight, their victory condition is just kill the dragon. Or for the goblins, it's kill the knight. Their victory conditions are all relatively straightforward, and obviously we didn't play with the dragon or the thief, so I don't know how those are balanced. But it really does seem like the cave is probably the most difficult and the one that requires the most careful balance 
as opposed to just, you know, every once in a while, I'll have to stop and say, okay, thief, stop doing that yeah, to prevent exactly. them from winning. But you have 100% of your game. It's just, okay, nobody, get, you, you know, you're the nanny. All yeah. the kids are running around the cave and you're like, no, 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 stop that. Don't get too far ahead. Stay back here Yeah. so I can win. Yeah, you're not allowed to move. You're not allowed to move. You have to do like the waiting kind of game. Yeah. And I really did enjoy that though. Like, I, I don't know. It fits my style of play, I think. I can see that. I, I do enjoy that and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Now that I know a little bit more about the game, I can't wait to bring it to the table again. Yeah, I'm excited to play it with a full five. Yes. I think that's going to be a much better representation of how well everything can be balanced. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing all the roles at play. We also got the chance to play one of the other games that I got in that hall, and this was one that I wasn't expecting to really buy. It was a game that was recommended to me from the kids section of Labyrinth called Gonuts for Donuts. Okay. I didn't realize it came from the kids section. I can see that now. I'm like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. Yeah. It's a very simple game, and it was compared to another food-based game, Sushi Go, and it's a set-collecting game. You're just trying to collect a set of a certain type of donut in order to get points. And once the donuts are gone, boom, that's it. The fun part about it is just the method of getting those donuts. You're not paying for them or anything like that. It's just bidding. If there are three people playing, you have four donuts out, and everyone has cards numbered one through four in their hand. Everyone secretly chooses one of them, places it down. Once everyone is placed, you reveal. Now, this is so far similar to something like Viceroy. But the difference here is that if two people bid for the same donut, that donut gets discarded instead of having to do any kind of rebid or anything like that. So it's a very interesting mechanic because it actually adds quite a bit of strategy to it. Because, you know, I'll bid for something that Greg wants because I know he's going to bid for it. Or he thinks that I'm going to bid for whatever he wants, so therefore he's not going to bid for it. And then I bid for it and, you know, all this kind of stuff, these kind of mind games. So it is a very simple game that you can explain it in like two minutes and you just start playing. But it does have, especially when you're playing with uh, people who are into board games, it has a decent strategic depth to it. Oh yeah, there's definitely a lot of complex calculations that go in and everything is a cost-benefit analysis. You know, if I can fight you, if I successfully judge what you're going to get then I have a choice. I can either deny you the opportunity to get that in exchange, get zero points myself, or I can just pivot, get something that I know you're not selecting, and take the points. So I have to look at the marginal difference, you know. Is denying you three points worth foregoing four points of my own? Maybe, maybe not, depending on the state of the other players. So it's mm -hmm. all, it's this very elaborate, like, okay, who's leading? Who do I need to shore up against? Who do I not care about? Yeah. And this, it's this dance of trying to figure out what other people are going to do versus what's best for you. And it's a lot of fun, and it's really adorable. Yeah. The donuts are, they've just got little faces on them. They look like stickers, like Facebook stickers. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they're like something that you'd see, like Pusheen-esque. Yeah. And one of the f most fun parts, I think, is always when there are like two or three of the same donut. And it's like, it's one that everyone wants. And it's like, okay, I know two people want this donut, me being one of them. Now, are they going to choose the low number or the high number? Yeah, that's definitely the trickiest situation. Because you can usually sort of, especially in the mid to late game, mm -hmm. you can triangulate what people want based on what sets they've already started to collect yeah. and what's out. But just the random, like, 
do I think you're going to go for the one that's at two or the one that's at four? You know, and then you guess wrong and you're like, God damn it. Yeah. So, and then the one person who didn't guess that is like, ha ha. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the other thing. You could just avoid that drama entirely mm-hmm. and go for, you know, one of the. Yeah. I was playing, I was playing one game with uh, two of our other friends and literally, I think after the first like three or four turns, I didn't get a donut for 10 turns <laughs> because I kept like, I blocked one person accidentally, then I blocked the other person accidentally, then I blocked one other. And it was just that I kept switching between the two of them. So they each got donuts because like I kept blocking the other person, right. oh, man. but I like got nothing. <laughs> it was funny though. And, and I mean like, it's a really quick game. So right. it's, it plays um, in like 10, 20 minutes. Exactly. And one of the really cool aspects of it that uh, we didn't mention is just the color coding, which, I mean, you can't use in most games, but it is really easy to set up for, you know, two, three, four, or five players because it's like when you're using two players, only use the pink cards. When you're use- going for three players, use the pink and the blue. When you're going for four players, use pink, blue, and green. And you shuffle them together, easy to separate, easy to put in. It's one of those games that is just like, all right, there we go. Let's go. Boom. That's it. Yeah, it's really clever um, and really obvious. And actually, the fact, you know, that you've said that it came from the children's section makes a lot of sense, you know, because there are ways to work around that. You say, you know, a game like Heat, um, you know, they'll have numbers or they'll have pips in the corner denoting which cards to take out when it's Mm -hmm. a three-player game versus a five-player game. But having something really big and bold and obvious like that is really ideal for a, a children's game. And even though, you know, we could work around it, it's nice to have. Exactly. From, you know, even for advanced gamers. It's like, okay, great. I don't have to worry about sorting through them. They're just, bam, there's the colors. Let's go. Yeah, exactly. And I think that it just is a very enjoyable, light, quick game. Yeah, totally agree. Real quick, before we call it a day for what we've been playing, I had a chance to introduce a friend of mine who's in town for the weekend to one of my favorite games, Viticulture. It's a worker placement game where you grow and make and sell wine. It's really fun. It's really strategic, but also playful. You know, it's it's making wine in the Tuscan countryside. What's not to love about that theme? But it was interesting because we, my, my partner and I, usually play this as a two-player game. It's one of the, the few games that we own that we both like. And so we play it more often than not when we're looking for a board game. So... We have played this probably half a dozen times, and we know most of the ins and outs, and we're like, okay, this is relatively straightforward. It won't be that hard to introduce to a new player who has played board games before, Dominion, Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. but not like an advanced gamer. We realized that that's a problem after we were about 20 minutes into explaining it, and we were like, oh god, wow, yeah, we forgot how difficult this was the first time we played. <laughs> Um, and it just goes to show you that it, it's always really important to keep that in mind, you know, because we do have, you know, we've got Arboretum, we've got Heat, we've got lots of simpler, more straightforward games that we probably could have played. They would have taken less time. They would have been less complicated. But we didn't even think about it because we weren't considering things from a different perspective than our own of having played this game a whole bunch. So, yeah. you know, even even for people who are accustomed to introducing games to new people it can sort of fly under your radar and you can forget to be mindful of where people are at in terms of relative experience and relative level of comfort with different games and different mechanics yeah exactly you you always have to keep that in mind and just figure out which game to take and i mean 
Arboretum, I don't know. You you still have the scoring system in that, which can be really convoluted as hell. I, yeah, I guess. I don't know. I've yeah. never found that that was super complicated. But I'm in the minority on that one, so whatever. Yeah. Well, there you have it. That's a look at what we've been playing. Quickly! He's coming! Hide all the bamboo! We have to finish this review of Takenoko before the panda eats it all! Alright, alright, let's go. Let's jump right in then. So first, let's talk about what Takenoko is. Yeah, Takenoko is an action selection game with primary mechanics of tile laying and spatial movement. Basically, you've got a bamboo plot field. I don't know what they call them. Uh, But you are putting different fields of bamboo into that plot and then moving a panda around to consume the bamboo and a gardener around to grow the bamboo. You've got objectives that relate to each of those activities, and you're trying to be the one at the end of the game with the most points. Exactly. So the way that a turn works is you start by rolling a weather die. The weather die itself is something that gives you an extra kind of bonus in the round. It can either be uh, being able to use the same action twice. It can be uh, getting an extra action, moving the panda wherever you want at one point in in the round it has a lot of different kinds of things that it'll give you as a bonus as compared to just the regular actions now the regular actions themselves you start with one that is drawing three tiles and putting one down pretty easy place a tile the tiles are one of three colors you either have the pink the yellow or the green tiles when you place it if it is irrigated or touching the center pond and or an irrigated plot, then you grow bamboo on it. Right. If it's not adjacent to the pond or has a special irrigation improvement on it, then you will need to irrigate it first, which is the second action. You can take a short wooden blue thing from the supply and irrigation channel, and you place them along the sides of already existing plots in order to create a cohesive network that irrigates adjacent tiles. Irrigated tiles can not only grow bamboo, but also can be used for scoring. Yes, exactly. And then you have the gardener. The gardener is an action that you can do that moves the gardener, and when you move, you have to go in a straight line as far as you want, but it has to be in a straight line over no gaps or anything like that, and wherever he ends, he grows bamboo on that tile, and any tile of the same color that is adjacent to it, and is irrigated. So if you have like two irrigated pink tiles next to one already, you place your gardener there, boom, all three of them grow. Right. The fourth type of action is moving the panda, panda follows the same movement rules as the gardener, moves in straight lines, except instead of growing bamboo when he arrives at the destination tile, he eats one bamboo. Rather than going back to the supply immediately, that bamboo is placed on your player board and can be consumed later on for points. Points are found in the form of objective cards, which is the fifth action. You can draw an objective card from one of three different stacks. There's the panda stack, which is basically consuming bamboo shoots from your player board back to the supply in some combination. You know, two yellow, one yellow, one pink, one green. Some combination of that gets you points. There are tile cards, which give you points if you have irrigated tiles of a certain color in a certain configuration. So you might get six points for having a diamond of pink tiles, so on and so forth. 
Uh, and that the final type of objective that you can claim is a gardener objective, which requires that there be bamboo shoots of a certain specific height and no higher on a specific type of tile. So we mentioned it briefly, but each tile can have certain types of improvements. There are irrigation, which are automatically irrigated and don't have to be connected to the pond by canals. There's fences, which prevent the panda from eating any bamboo on that tile. And there's fertilizer, which grow two when they would otherwise grow one. So gardener objective cards might say, you have to have a three height green bamboo on a tile that also has the fertilizer objective. So once that's fulfilled somewhere on the board, and again, there's no claiming mechanics, so just anywhere on the board, you can, as a non-action, present that objective card, score its points. Exactly. And as you score the objective cards, you are working your way towards the end of the game. So the game ends when, depending on the number of players, a certain number of objective cards have been played. So in a three-player game, for example, I believe it was eight objective cards that had to be placed. Right. And then the person who places the eighth objective card, they get the Emperor card, which is an extra two victory points. And then all of the other players get one more round or one more turn. After that's done, total up the points. Boom. Whoever has the most points wins. Yeah. Um, and that's the game. It's really simple. It's really quick. It's really easy to pick up and play. There is a new expansion called Takenoku Chibi, which introduces a couple of new mechanics. First of all, there's new types of tiles. You have one new special tile in each color, which grows not only adjacent tiles of the same color when the gardener lands on it, but all tiles of that color anywhere in the plot, as long as they're irrigated. Yeah. So there's one of each of those in each color. There's a special tile that has all three different colors of bamboo on it and will grow each of them each time it grows. There's one called the Gardener's Shed, which is very powerful and allows you to look at one of each type of objective and pick which one you want to keep. So that gives you a lot of flexibility there. And then the final one is just another pond. It's functionally identical to the pond at the beginning. It irrigates adjacent tiles and it can be placed adjacent to as though it were the starter pond. And the other part that this game adds is Miss Panda. Now, Miss Panda is another figure that you can move just like you would the regular panda. Now, during a panda movement action, you can choose either the panda or Miss Panda in order to move. Then you move them normally, but Miss Panda does not actually eat any bamboo. So when she moves, the only thing that you're trying to do is you're trying to get her onto the tile with the other panda. If they do get there, then they have a cup. You know, it's easy like that in board games. It's true. Birds and the bees is just like, go to the same place. Spontaneous children. Yeah. And then if you get that cub, what it is, is that based on the color of the tile that you're on, you will choose one of three. And they will do two things. First off, they'll give you two victory points at the end of the game, straight out. The second thing that happens is that you get a bonus for doing that. You either get a, an improvement tile, an irrigation tile, or you get to discard one of the cards that you have in your hand to free up a bit more space because there is no other discard mechanic and you can only have up to five objectives in your hand at a time. If you have a really hard one, this is a chance for you to get rid of it. Right, and that's pretty much all there is to it. The expansion adds a couple of different variants that involve how things grow and how you score. But for the most part, it's a fairly simple, straightforward expansion. The whole game is 
fun and quick and light, and this really fits in with that. It's the perfect example, I think, of an expansion that adds new sorts of strategic elements, new types of content, but without screwing up what was already really a very balanced game. Exactly, exactly. And this game itself, it just feels really fun. It is a very funny theme. It's just the panda is running around this bamboo garden and trying to eat all the different types of bamboo. The gardener is trying to keep it all like really high or like in certain configurations. And he wants the bamboo to grow while you're also trying to build out the garden. And it's just like really quick, really light fun. You're just running around to, you know, oh, damn it, you, your panda ate my bamboo. Or, you know, you, you grew that too high. God damn it, I not have to actually like send my panda over there to eat it. And it's just pretty quick in general. It takes about 45 minutes to play. It's really easy to do that. And the rules are very simple and straightforward for the most part. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other things that I like about it is that it it is quick, but it's not too quick. It's a game that, you know, you want to have some strategic depth because the tile laying and the objective mechanics sort of reward strategic thinking. But if you didn't have some of the safeguards in place, specifically the restriction that only irrigated tiles can, one, grow bamboo, and two, more importantly, be used for scoring, I think the game would probably be over too quickly. So that acts as a really important strategic safeguard to make the game more moderately paced while still, you know, being pretty quick as opposed to just being, wait a minute, we're done, we just started. Yeah, and I think another thing that adds to that is actually the fact that you can't do two of the same actions at any one point. Right. Because that really prevents you from going for literally just one strategy, just... You know, I'm just going to put these tiles down and that's it. Because you can only do that once per turn unless you roll a specific thing on the die. And so it really does add a little bit to that and and makes it so that the game doesn't go too quickly. And it just paces it. You have to think ahead of time. Like, you know, if I can only move the gardener once and I can only move him in a straight line, you know, maybe I need to take this turn to set him up and hope that no one else is going to you know, screw with me on that or something like that. Right. All these things are great, but as we're fond of saying, no game is perfect. And one of the things that we've sort of observed is that while the balance of chance and strategy tends to be fairly good, there are situations where luck just wins out. Because of the way that picking up an objective works, it's a lot like Ticket to Ride where you can pick an objective card and it's already done. Um, And it just gives you points. And I think in the last game that we played, that specific thing actually happened to you two or three times. Yes. So, you know, it's completely uncontrollable. It's nothing that you can respond to. And sometimes it just gets out of hand in little ways. It's not a game where your engine builds on itself and the lucky advantage that you got early converts into better, more successful actions later in the game. Because, you know, the points have no actual impact on the game, they're not money, they're just points. But that chance element still does sort of leave a bad taste in your mouth if it happens to you in a particular game. Yeah, exactly. It can really happen that, you know, you top deck, like, the perfect card that you need, boom, like, you know, oh, this would be really hard, but it's already on the field, and, you know, I don't have to actually take any action in order to get this objective. It just goes and gets placed down. So that definitely can be a little bit frustrating sometimes. The other thing that I wanted to just mention is the components are, for the most part, pretty good. I mean, the 
pieces like the gardener, the panda, Miss Panda, and all that, they're pretty good. Mm -hmm. The bamboo, however, can be hit or miss. And I mean, it is going to be this way with a game that, you know, has wooden pieces that you need to be painted and in order to actually stack them, you have like the almost like fitting in dowel into another thing and to stack them up to four high. And it isn't done amazingly. Like there are always just some of the pieces that have like little bits on the end or around the thing that make it so that they don't sit correctly in the actual other pieces. And then that can cause, especially when you're doing like four high, like it's like, oh, I'm putting the fourth one on, boom, it fell down. But for all its flaws, it is still a really great game. And it's, you know, relatively cheap for a fully featured game. It is only $40 as opposed to the usual 60 that you're going to find for a big box game like this. I'm going to say buy it. Um, I think it, it is really great. It rewards strategy with a little element of chance, which as much as I may personally not like it, a lot of people really like to sort of throw a wrench in their gears sometimes. It's cute. It's fun. It's quick. It's easy. All these things mean that I can't not give it a buy it. And I'm actually going to echo that because I think that it's a game that I have taught a lot of people to enjoy board games with this because it is quick enough and light enough to bring new people in, yet at the same time, I still enjoy bringing it to table myself. So this is a kind of game that I think is really good for both you know new players, old players, and especially the people who aren't really sure if they want to play board games, like the intro games, entry-level games. This is one that really works very well. There isn't really that much of the runaway mechanic. You don't really need to worry about the strategy too much, but it, it's still a lot of fun. Absolutely. Quick before we go, we do want to mention a couple of games that we think are similar. If you like Takenoku, you might like these and vice versa. First among these is Five Tribes. It's not an obvious comparison, but they actually do have a lot of similarities in terms of moving things around a board and thinking a couple of moves ahead when you're developing your strategy. If you are thinking about how to get bamboo, one, to grow, two, to eat, things like that, you're going to have to look a little further down the road than your next play. And Five Tribes is very much the same sort of advanced gameplay. You know, you've got to be thinking about what you're going to move, but also what actions you want to perform, how you're going to have to move to get there, and most importantly, what other people are going to be doing in the interim to mess you up. That said, Five Tribes is definitely at a little bit of a higher level. Takenoko is much more accessible. But if you do like those mechanics, you can consider it a stepping stone to a game like Five Tribes. A game that's a little bit closer to the level of Takenoko is Lanterns. Uh, and it also has a very much the tiling aspect similar to Takenoko. So you're still trying to collect the different cards and all that, and everything is based on the placement. And so it does have those similarities, and I think especially the feel of the game and the weight of the game is very similar. So it, they're both really light games, they're both fun bring, to bring to table, and they're both really good intro games. And there you have it. That's our review of Takenoko. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Dragon's Demise. We hope you enjoyed. Now to announce the winners of our Race for the Galaxy digital contest. Our winners are Adam Troop, Michelle Velasquez, Nuno Espinal, Tom Dore, and Michael Teague. Thank you all for participating. 
Congratulations again to all of our winners, and thank you very much to everyone who entered. We really appreciate your support. We really appreciate you taking the time to stop by our social media, stop by our YouTube, and to listen to the podcast. WashingCon tickets are on sale. If you haven't picked yours up yet, absolutely get those now. In addition, we're still looking for volunteers. If you've got eight hours free during that weekend, come on down, volunteer at WashingCon, and your full ticket price will be refunded. There's plenty of opportunities to do things, help out on the con floor, and the organizers are always super, super appreciative. If that sounds like something you'd want to do and you're available, head over to WashingCon.com for full details on how to volunteer. Additionally, as we've been mentioning, it's going to be a great, great time. There's going to be so many games. There's going to be so many designers. If you thought the giveaways were pretty great last year at the Play It to Win It and at the raffles, just wait. This year is really going to blow your socks off. So again, WashingCon.com for all your WashingCon needs. Finally, join us next week when we'll... Wait, no. We're actually going to be on a two-week hiatus. Jacob's going out of the country. I'm going to be busy with some other things going on. But we are still going to be doing some YouTube content. We're going to be releasing episodes of our vlog. And some of our friends are teaming up to host some alternative content on our weekly Wednesday stream. So head on over to the YouTube channel and our Twitch channel to check out that content in the meantime. Podcast will resume September 1st.